0: What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Alan Stein Jr. Alan is a keynote speaker, author, and performance coach. He spent more than 15 years working with the highest performing basketball players on the planet, including NBA superstars Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and Kobe Bryant. We discussed the personality traits that make elite athletes exceptional, how to overcome failure, the keys to maximizing performance, the importance of a routine, and much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Alan, and I hope that you do also. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've been wearing a Whoop for several years now, and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24 seven. So it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. Whoop automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex, but Whoop interprets the data for you, so it's easy to digest and actionable. And now, their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering my listeners 15% off their Whoop 4.0 right now with the code JOE at checkout. So go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter JOE at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now, feel healthier with Whoop next up is element i've been focusing on my hydration levels for the past few months and i've learned that chugging water isn't the most important thing but replenishing electrolytes is when you sweat the primary electrolyte loss is sodium electrolytes facilitate hundreds of functions in the body including the conduction of nerve impulses hormonal regulation nutrient absorption and fluid balance but since drinking element i feel more energized and experience fewer headaches and muscle cramps It's simple. I just add it to my water every morning, and I'm ready to go. No sugar, no junk. There's a reason why hundreds of pro athletes and teams across the NBA and NFL are using it also. That's because it works. And now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets free with any Element order. So go get yours at drinkelement.com. This deal is only available through my link, so make sure you go to drink, D-R-I-N-K, Element, L-M-N-T, Dot com slash Joe
1: Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.
0: All right, let's get into this episode. What's up, everyone? I'm here with Alan Stein Jr., who is an author, speaker, and has worked in and around basketball at the highest level for more than 15 years now. He's got a new book that just came out called Sustain Your Game. Alan, how are you?
1: Oh, I'm fantastic, Joe. It's so great to be with you.
0: Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. I think the easiest place to probably start is just a little bit of your background, so everyone has context on kind of where you come from, what you did previously, and so forth.
1: Absolutely. So I think from a professional standpoint, what's most pertinent is that I fell in love with the game of basketball at five years old when my parents signed me up for my first recreation basketball league. And here 40 years later, basketball is still a major pillar of my life. And I say that because I'm beyond grateful that I've been able to not only make a living, but build a life around something I'm so passionate about. And as I was coming up through the basketball ranks, a coach of mine gave me what I still to this day consider the best advice I ever received, which is find something you love to do, find something you're naturally pretty good at, and then find where those two things intersect. And wherever those things intersect, that's your strength zone. And the more time you can spend investing in your strength zone, not only will you perform at a higher level, but you'll also have a much higher sense of joy and happiness and fulfillment as well. And, and I've really stayed true to that, that recipe throughout my career. When I was done in college, I played basketball at Elon down in North Carolina. And when I graduated, I decided to become a basketball performance coach and marry my original love of basketball with, at the time, a very newfound love of fitness, strength, conditioning, and performance training. And I did that for 15 years after I graduated and had an opportunity to work with some of the game's best players and coaches and really learned a lot. And then five years ago, I decided to make the very distinct and intentional pivot out of the game of basketball and take all of these lessons that I had learned through the game and show folks how to apply them to the corporate space, to the work environment, and certainly to their own lives. And that's what I do at present and am having an absolute blast doing it.
0: How has that evolved over time on the basketball side, right? I assume at first this wasn't very popular. Like did all NBA players have performance coaches at first when you first begun and has it become more popular over time?
1: Oh, I'm so glad you went in that direction. And no, you're incredibly insightful with that question because when I graduated college in 1999, less than a third of NBA teams even had a strength and conditioning consultant at the time. And most of their strength and conditioning consultants admittedly was like the biggest, strongest guy at the neighborhood Gold's Gym, like someone that just looked like he knew what he was talking about. So to go from 1999, where this really wasn't even a thing at the highest level, fast forward to present day, where not only does every NBA team have a strength and conditioning coach, they have an entire performance department that usually employs 25 to 30 people and ranging from strength and conditioning coach, athletic trainer, massage therapist, nutritionist, chef, you know, I mean it's remarkable how far that's come and it's even trickled down now that most of the the most prominent high school programs in the United States have strength and conditioning coaches. So yeah, to see that journey over the last, you know, 20 to 25 years has been really cool.
0: Yeah, you have some pictures for people who are just listening on the wall behind you of some great NBA players that you've worked with. And I did some research beforehand. I know that some of those are, you know, Kevin Durant, Kobe Bryant and so forth. Are there any qualities that are just obvious overlaps between a bunch of the great players that you've worked with?
1: Oh, there sure are. And what I've recently found out over these last five years is those qualities don't just unite the highest performers in basketball. They're the exact same qualities that unite high performers in any walk of life, in any industry, whether it's music or the arts or acting, and certainly in the corporate space. The ones that jump out immediately, the first and I learned this directly from Kobe Bryant the first time I met him in 2007, when he looked me in the eye and said, the best never get bored with the basics. And it's been my experience that every high performer in any craft has a respect, a profound respect for the fundamentals, for the basic building blocks that it takes to be good at their craft, that they don't look to skip steps and they don't ignore things because they're basic, You know, trying to chase something fancy or sexy they stick to the basic building blocks and they don't deviate from those. So that's certainly one trait. Another trait that I've noticed is the best of the best do a beautiful job and a masterful job of blending confidence with humility. They are very confident at their craft because they've earned the right to be confident through the work they've put in during the unseen hours. And they believe in themselves and they believe they deserve to win whatever winning looks like in that specific vocation. But they blend that with the humility that allows them to stay open to feedback, allows them to stay open to coaching and reminds them that no matter how good they are, they know they can still get better. That they don't get caught playing the comparison game and saying, hey, I'm better than so-and-so, so so I guess I can kind of rest on my laurels. They say, am I as good as I'm capable of becoming? And the answer to that question is always no to those high performers. So, So they do a great job of blending that swagger and that confidence that is earned with the humility to stay open, to continue to grow. Those are two that jump out immediately, but there's probably a much longer list that unite high performers.
0: Yeah, and part of this is, it's very easy to explain some of this through the sense of sports, right? Through that lens of, you know, you win or you lose, and the results speak for themselves, how well people perform. How do you articulate this to people in the business world?
1: Well, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Simon Sinek's most recent book, The Infinite Game, but Simon actually did a brilliant job of kind of highlighting the biggest difference between sport and business. And in summary, for anyone that hasn't read it, but I recommend you add that to your reading list, is sport and the game of basketball in this example is a finite game. There is a definitive start, a definitive stop, and we have all across the globe unanimously agreed that the team with the most points on the scoreboard when the final buzzer goes off is the winner business and life for that matter is much more esoteric is much more evergreen As simon sinek mentions there's not really a definitive start and stop and everybody defines winning slightly different i mean if you were to interview the top 100 ceos in the united states and ask each of them to define what winning looks like for their business certainly you would hear some common themes and there would be some overlap no doubt but you would not get 100 identical answers. Each person values something slightly different or believes winning should be measured slightly different. So with that being said, we have to keep in mind that in business, you're not looking to win by this Friday. You're looking to sustain excellence over a long period of time, hence the reason it's evergreen. And you have the luxury of defining what winning looks like to your organization, you know, that Nike and Google and Amazon might all differ in what they consider winning, but it doesn't matter what the other guys think. All that matters is that every single person on your team has tremendous clarity over what winning looks like and everybody within their role is making a maximum contribution to make that happen. And to me, that's what makes business so fun, you know, that we actually have some room to play and we have some room to be creative in defining what excellence looks like.
0: The main focus of your new book, Sustain Your Game, is around the idea that you can constantly get better, right? You're constantly evolving and looking to achieve the best part of yourself. How do you educate people on the best process to do that? Is it simply just 1% better every single day, 2% better every single day, and it compounds over time? Or do you think about it in a different context?
1: Well, the incremental progress and compounding interest is definitely a key tenet and component. And that's another thing that I've learned from high performers most of them are at such an elite level because they've been doing this for years, if not decades, that there's just not room for them to make these giant cavernous leaps in performance. If you're Tom Brady or you're Beyonce or you're Warren Buffett, you're already in the upper o one percent of people in your field. So all you can hope for are little minor tweaks, little minor incremental improvements. So that's Yeah, that is absolutely a core component. But another component to the book is in order to sustain excellence for long periods of time, you have to find meaning in your work and you have to enjoy your work. There has to be a sense of fulfillment that when those things run out and stress and stagnation and burnout start to escalate, that's when you have a major problem. So part of it is sticking to your purpose, sticking to what you find meaning in, sticking to your core values, sticking to the things that you're curious about and fascinate you, that light you up. Because when you can have that type of intentionality and excitement around your work, and you believe you are making a contribution to something bigger than yourself or bigger than your personal bank account, that's what will allow you to do that For long periods of time. I mean, when you look at the folks that I just mentioned, Tom Brady doesn't need to keep playing football to make more money. Beyonce doesn't need to put out another record or go on tour again because she needs more money. And certainly Warren Buffett's in that same category. They're at a point now where that's just the byproduct of doing what they love and their commitment to excellence and commitment to high performance in their chosen vocation.
0: How do you think about overcoming failure, right? Because I'm sure this is something that comes up a lot, not only with professional athletes, but in the world of business too, right? If you lose a deal, if you don't get a promotion or things along those lines, there's wins and losses in life and any kind of career. How do you manage the losses?
1: The most important part is just reframing how you view failure. So I'm 46 years old, so I'm basically a product of the 1980s. And when I was younger, failure was considered a bad word. I mean, it was the other F word that you did everything in your power not to fail. You didn't want to fail a test or a class or an exam. You didn't want to get cut from the basketball team, any of those things that you know, would be deemed failure, you did everything you could to avoid. And now, you know, hopefully after some life experience and some earned wisdom and a new framed look at life, I no longer look at those things as failures. I just look at them more as stepping stones and as feedback to help you, you know, narrow the focus on where it is that you're trying to go. So while failing in anything never feels good in the moment, And that's okay, because sometimes that uncomfortableness or that pain can be the fuel to drive you forward. But now when I fail at anything in my life, and trust me, that happens pretty frequently, I just simply take a deep breath and I go, okay, what can I learn from this? Like, what is this failure? Where's the opportunity to learn a lesson from this? What is this teaching me? Because I don't want it to go in vain. Second thing I do is I have an attitude of extreme ownership and I don't blame, complain, or make excuses. I hold myself 100% responsible for whatever that failure was. And I asked myself, all right, how was I complicit in not getting what I want? What could I have done differently to potentially get a different result? And when I keep everything aimed at my own, you know, what I have control over, and then I try to pull the lesson out from it, then there's actually value extracted. So, yes, there's nothing wrong with it stinging or, you know, you being a little down in the dumps for a night when something doesn't go your way. But then to me, the key is waking up the next day with some unbridled optimism that says, okay, I don't love the outcome that I just got, but instead of just letting that drag me down, let me figure out what I can learn from this outcome, redirect and course correct and pivot. And now let's see if we can get a more desired outcome next time.
0: Yeah. Part of this feels like certain athletes are born with it to a degree, right? They just have a higher degree of mental toughness maybe than other people inherently, but certainly part of this feels like it can be learned and taught over time, which is something that you've spent a considerable amount of time. It seems on doing not only with athletes, but people in business. How do you think about bridging that gap? I'm sure you deal with lots of people that just are in a totally different mental state when you first get to them or you first talk to them than the likes of Kobe Bryant or Kevin Durant or any of these high world-class athletes. How do you bridge that gap and teach them these things over time?
1: Well, the first starts with that reframing and letting them know, hey, failure is never fatal and it's never permanent. So even though you didn't get the outcome that you wanted in a business sense, you know, you you didn't get the promotion, you didn't make the sale, your team didn't hit the quarterly goal. It's not over because, again, as we established earlier, this is evergreen. You know, there is no final buzzer. You can still work to re-earn that promotion or get the next sale or you guys have another quarter coming up where you can actually blow through that goal. So part of it comes from that reframing and the learning process. And then it also just comes with the ability to kind of anesthetize yourself with pure repetition. If you're a basketball player, even if you're of the quality of Steph Curry, the greatest shooter to ever play the game, Steph misses six out of 10 three-pointers that he takes. He makes you know roughly 40%, which puts him in the Hall of Fame, by the way but he misses more than he makes. And in that vocation, that's just something we understand. I mean, it's same thing in baseball. If you hit three out of 10 times you're at bat, you're gonna be in the hall of fame, you're a 300 hitter. So we just have to have that mindset in whatever it is that we're trying to approach. I mean, sales is another one where you have to learn how to be really resilient. Depending on what industry you're in and what it is that you're actually selling, you might be a world-class sales professional and only close one out of 10 deals depending on your industry, if that one deal is worth multi-millions of dollars, then things are gonna be okay. Things are gonna work out. So some of it is just getting the mere repetition. I mean, I've learned that firsthand now as a keynote speaker. I'm very thankful that I you know, have a very full schedule and I get to do the amount of gigs that I'd like to do each year, but it's still a game of math. I mean, I get turned down for just as many gigs as I get the offer for. And as I mentioned before, while that never feels good in the moment, And while it would be my preference for every single organization, event, and client to want me to speak, the reality is that's not the case. I'm not always a good fit for them. And whenever that does happen, I have to ask myself, all right, what can I learn from this? How was I complicit? Was there anything I could have done differently to maybe get a different outcome? And many times the answer is no. Many times it's simply I'm not the right fit. My background and my message is not the right fit for that specific client or their event. And I'm at peace with that. And I'm okay with that. So I can look at it with the neutrality of Steph Curry stepping up to shoot a shot and it you know falls a half an inch short and he misses. He doesn't let that affect the rest of the game. He isn't timid the next time he gets the ball because last time I happened to miss a shot. He has that next play mentality. And that's something I've tried to build with myself is absolutely something I work with, with both the individual clients and the organizations I work with, is you have to have that whiteboard memory where you can just wipe the slate clean and always just move to the next play. And don't take any of it personal, you know, look at everything through a lens of neutrality.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. Is there any individual, an athlete or a business person that you look to and you say that's kind of the model for the mindset, the mental toughness, the routines, all of that, that you point to and you say they have it all, they're doing it correctly?
1: Wow, there's so many. And, and the interesting part is one thing that I've learned over time, you know, and many of the ones that I'm thinking of are folks that I've never had the opportunity to meet yet. I've consumed their content or read their books or listened to them on podcasts. So I also have to recognize that I don't have the full picture. I only have a snapshot and that I don't necessarily know everything that's going on in their life. And usually with many of them, it's on the personal side. That we, you know, just a social follower or someone in the public does not have all of the information on. So we can see, hey, they're super successful on the field or court or super successful in the boardroom, if you will, but I don't know how successful their marriage is, or how connected they are to their children, or do they feel a sense of purpose in their community? So some of that is always kind of left to the unknown. But one that I started kind of really idolizing very early in my coaching career was Coach K, the recent Hall of Fame coach at Duke for the men's basketball program. He's someone I had a chance to meet several times and have some nice conversations with. And I've devoured all of his books, and I'm very good personal friends with several people that played for him and know him well. And for the most part, most people would agree that he kind of had it all, as you just mentioned. Certainly, basketball was the central focus of his professional career, but he's been happily married for longer than I've been breathing, has a great relationship with now his adult children. So he's certainly someone that immediately comes to mind as being really good at his craft, kind of setting the bar as a coach in college basketball but has also been able to have a more well-rounded approach to his life.
0: That makes me think about it, not necessarily because Duke basketball, they're obviously a very good team for several decades in a row, not necessarily maybe a dynasty in the sense of winning a championship every single year, but there's certainly dynasties throughout sports, whether you look at the NBA, NFL, Mercedes and Formula One, right? Like there's just a bunch of examples of this. What do you think keeps these teams or these individuals at such a high level at such a consistent rate, right? Like I'm assuming there's some kind of process that they're following or, or some level of mindset that keeps them at this elite level, because you know, better than anyone, right? Like it's just really, really, really difficult to do keep this sustained high level of excellence for an extended period of time.
1: Oh, it absolutely is. I'm glad you went in that direction. You know, a few of the things that pop out. One is something Nick Saban's famous for saying. A good friend of mine, Ben Newman, who works for Alabama football, has told me this, that he has this mindset of standard over feelings, that the best teams have a standard of excellence and a culture of excellence, and they rise to that standard regardless of how they feel. You know, we as sentient beings, as human beings, our emotions are always going to ebb and flow, you know, our emotions are always going to have a ro- be on a roller coaster. You know, it's easy to be elated one moment, then hear some news and then be very dejected and upset literally 30 seconds later. But the best of the best, especially when it comes to teams, they're incredibly consistent in their performance because they're always just aiming for the standard. They're never getting caught up in convenience or how they feel or what they wish, you know, was going on. So that mindset of standard is certainly one of the components. The other is everybody understands that they're playing for something bigger than themselves, that when you decide to be a part of a team, you decide to forego the me for the we, that it's not just about what I want. It's not just about how much I play and how many points I score and what my next contract is going to be. It's about we. It's about how can I, within my role, make a maximum contribution to the greater good and to everyone around me so that we can pursue whatever our ultimate goal is, which, of course, in sport is that championship or that banner or that trophy or that ring. So they still work on themselves. They still, as I mentioned earlier, have incredibly high confidence and swagger. They still want to perform well, and there's nothing wrong with them wanting some of that individual accolades, but they forego that being the primary driver and say, hey, we is more important than me in the long term. And, you know, those are a couple of the qualities. And then, of course, culture is another word that's just thrown around, both in sport and business. Uh, I like to define culture as the alignment between your beliefs and your behaviors. So you've got you know, your core values and they're up on the wall in your office and they're on your website. Well, how well does everyone on your team model and live those core values? The degree at which they do that is ultimately what your culture is. You know, For you to talk about things like honesty, respect, accountability, and then not live those things out means you have a very weak culture, that there's a lot of talk, but there's not a whole lot of substance. So the key is making sure there's an alignment there. And that's what I've noticed with the highest performing organizations. And I think one of the best examples, and keep in mind too, that especially when it comes to sport, that you can have a winning culture and you can have a team of selfless individuals that forego the me for the we, and it doesn't always reflect in wins. It doesn't always reflect in winning that championship. And what I was going to say is the perfect example is the Golden State Warriors. You know, I mean, they created a mini dynasty a few years ago Kevin Durant left, Klay Thompson got injured, Steph Curry got injured, and then they fell on some pretty hard times. They made a great draft pick in James Wiseman, who then was also injured. You know, so they went from being at the top of the NBA for three straight years to literally the bottom of the NBA for two straight years. And as we just saw recently at the time of this recording, now they're right back on top with another championship. And I can promise you that even with that ebb and flow, their culture never wavered, Their standard of excellence never wavered. The players who were actually healthy and could suit up never wavered in their desire to pursue that. And even though you got slightly different outcomes, it wasn't from lack of culture. And the reason they've been able to get back on top is because those other things were so consistent. And you know, they didn't necessarily have control over the injuries or some of the losses that they faced, but they still maintained that level of excellence. And that was fun to watch. I was glad to see them win it again because it wasn't like they won... And then things took a turn for the worse and they threw everything out and said, we're going to do everything differently. We're going to fire our coach. We're going to fire our general manager. We're going to bring in all new players. And that's what some organizations do. They lose confidence in what got them to the top in the first place when they hit a few rocks and they abandon everything. And the Golden State Warriors stayed true to that and said, no, when we get everybody healthy and we get everybody back and we keep living out this alignment between beliefs and behaviors, we'll be back on top again. And they are. And I think that's been really fun to watch.
0: Yeah, it's amazing, actually. Have you read The Score Takes Care of Itself, Bill Walsh's leadership book?
1: I sure have. Absolutely brilliant book. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's ultimately probably a more succinct way of saying what I'm talking about right now is if you do the little things right consistently, and everyone on the team is committed to maximizing their role and making a maximum contribution. And you create a culture where accountability is a good word. People want to hold each other accountable to a high standard of excellence. You don't let feelings and emotions and what people say and what people do guide how you behave. When you do those things, the scoreboard will take care of itself. It might take a little bit to get there, but it eventually will. And it's same with business. You know, However you define winning, whatever metrics you want to look at, Once you've decided and you have that North Star as a CEO, now your goal is to take your focus off of that North Star or scoreboard in this analogy and put it on what are the daily behaviors that my team needs to execute in order to make that a reality. And when you can get everyone with a high sense of buy-in and believe-in to make that a reality, then it just becomes the byproduct. And that's ultimately the other way of saying that brilliant title by Bill Walsh is winning as a byproduct of doing the right thing consistently. Profits are a byproduct of doing the right thing in business consistently. So that's what's most important. It's not about the outcome or the goal. It's about the process and the habits and the daily behaviors.
0: Well, it made me think of it because to your point, it can take some time, right? You may not even know how close you are to some degree because he tells, I mean, there's a bunch of different stories in the book and it's been several years since I read it, but he, a lot of the stuff he's saying seems trivial to some people, right? You got to wear your uniform the a certain way. The receptionist has to answer the phone a certain way. You know, there was very detailed things, not necessarily because that's how he wanted it done, but because it was part of a larger picture and things he thought were important from a leadership perspective. But there's one part of the book where I think they lost in Miami, right? So they were one of the worst teams in the NFL. They eventually become this massive dynasty but somewhere along the way he's heavily doubting himself to a degree even right he's saying you know we're losing a bunch of games i think even in the one scene flying back from miami he cries on the plane think he's gonna get fired and all these things right because to your point they were doing all the right things but not everything was aligned correctly right and ultimately they end up winning games and they win these championships and so forth and it works out but i guess the point really is that like you just don't know how close you are sometimes
1: Yeah. And that's why using the end result and the outcome as the only barometer can be incredibly misleading because there have to be some other things that line up in order to reach those outcomes. Think about at the beginning of every NBA season, for the most part, every single team has the same goal, win the championship, hoist the trophy up at the end of the year. So 30 teams have the exact same goal at the beginning of the season. Only one gets to do that. So that means in theory. 29 teams failed at their goal. But that doesn't mean 29 teams are failures or losers or that they didn't do a vast majority of the things right. Using the current example from this current season, the Celtics had an amazing season. They did most of the things right most of the time for most of the season. They should be very proud. You know, when it came down to it, they just didn't have quite enough to beat golden state in the finals. But I think anyone that would look at this year's Celtics team and call them a failure, I think is being foolish, to be honest with you. So we can't just use the outcome as the only barometer. And the other reason that is incredibly dangerous is high performers tend to aim really high. They have really lofty goals and as they should. And I know in my personal life and professional life, but in my life in general, I probably only hit about half of the goals I set. But I'm okay with that. I love the fact that I only hit half of my goals because if I hit every single goal I set, I think I could make a compelling argument that I'm not setting my sights high enough. You know, I'm aiming too low. So there's nothing wrong with falling short of a goal, especially if you're aiming high. And if you view yourself as a failure because you don't hit that goal, once again, now we're back on that roller coaster. You know, if my entire identity, and my self-worth, and my self-belief, and my self-confidence is always tied into achievement, then that means, by definition, when I hit a goal, I feel good about myself. When I fall short of a goal, I feel lousy about myself. Well, I just admitted that I hit about half of my goals, and that's just off the top of my head. I haven't done any research. That would mean half of my life I feel good, half of my life I feel lousy. I don't know about you, but for me, life is too short to feel lousy half of the time. So I want to learn how to, and this piggybacks on what we were talking about earlier, fall short of a goal and it's okay to wish you would have hit it and wish you had a different outcome, but how can you learn from it? How can you course correct? What can you change moving forward to maybe give you a better chance to hit it in the future? That's the type of mindset that winners have. And I know this is so cliche and it's been said a million times, but it's not win or lose, it's win or learn. And there's even an issue, I even have an issue with that statement because it implies that when you win, you're not learning something and you absolutely should be learning something. And it also implies that when you lose, that the lesson is automatic and that's not true. You actually have to do some soul searching and some digging and some self accountability to learn the lesson. You better believe that the Celtics, all the way up from you know the owner and the president, all the way to the 15th man on the team have been reflecting over this past week on why they weren't able to get over the hump and beat Golden State and really dissecting what do we need to do different? Do we need to make some personnel changes? Do we need to play a slightly different style? Uh, Was it outside of our control? Did we just not hit shots when we need to hit shots? And if that's the case, how can we get back in the gym and improve our shooting percentage? You better believe they are reflecting heavily on that. And it's okay that they were disappointed that they didn't win. But that's certainly not going to stop them in the long run. They're all going to get back to work and figure out, all right, how can we increase our chance of getting the outcome we want next year?
0: I'd be remiss to let you go without asking if you have any great Kobe Bryant stories. I know you've met him several times at least, and you had somewhat of a relationship with him. Is there anything that stuck out to you uh, that really opened your eyes to the kind of player person mindset that he had?
1: I sure do. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll give you kind of the cliff notes version, the shorter version. And then I've got a few different versions of the full story on my YouTube channel we can send folks to. But in 2007, when I met him at his first skills Academy, I had a chance to watch one of his really early morning workouts. I mean, put it this way. I got there at three 30 in the morning. And he had already beat me to the gym. He was already in the gym working out, which is insane. And I watched him do some really basic footwork and offensive moves. And that's when I said at the beginning of our conversation, you know, I asked him point blank. I said, Kobe, you're the best player in the world. Why are you doing such basic drills? And he flashed that million dollar smile and gave me a friendly wink. But he said in a very serious tone, why do you think I'm the best in the world? Because I never get bored with the basics. And that was that lesson that still to this day, you know, resonates very strongly with me, that he understood the importance of working towards mastery of the fundamentals. And in the game of basketball, you know, you're talking about shooting mechanics, you're talking about footwork. And even when he was on top of the world and on top of his game, he still continued to refine those things. And that's the lesson that I pull and and try to teach to every group I work with is in your profession or your specific craft or industry, you need to figure out what are the basic building blocks. You know, what is your shooting mechanics and footwork that you need to work towards mastery of and how can you do that every single day? And the beautiful part, and you brought up this point earlier about the concept of incremental progress and compounding interest, when you focus on the basics, you don't have to do them for six hours a day. In most areas, if you spend 15 to 20 minutes every single day drilling down on the basic fundamentals, that will add up. You know, it's doing a little bit every day adds up to a lot, and that's you know one of the key tenets. And then another thing that I ended up learning from Kobe because I wanted to figure out why he wanted to be up at three in the morning to work out. And basically, he said, "Look, the most ambitious players in the NBA in the off season are going to work out twice a day. These guys are willing to work out, you know, two to three hours twice a day to be the best at what they do. And if I only do what they're doing, it's hard for me to create any separation." So if the most ambitious player is going to work out twice a day, I'm going to work out three times a day. Every time they work out twice, I'm getting in an extra workout. And if I do that consistently enough, I'll create separation and they'll never be able to catch me. You know, he said, I'm coming home from my first workout and you're going to your first workout. You know, you're coming home from your first workout. I'm coming to my second workout. You'll never be able to catch me. And that was really his mindset and certainly the cornerstone of the Mamba mentality. And and I always put this caveat, you know, that worked well for Kobe. Generally speaking, as far as my life's philosophy, I'm not really in the camp of more is better. You know, I'm not in the camp that if everyone's working 12-hour days, I need to work 16-hour days. I come from a different school of thought, but no one can argue with Kobe's result and no one can argue that that was pretty authentic and genuine to his approach to everything is I'm going to outwork you just with sheer force and sheer will and log more minutes and hours than you do. And I will beat you. And it works for him. So the lesson that I pull from that is everyone needs to figure out what works for you. What is the approach and the mentality that works for you that gives you the edge? Those are two massive lessons that I learned from Kobe that I still apply to my life today.
0: I love that. Before I let you go, where can people go find more about you on the internet, more of your content? And then where can they go check out the book?
1: Uh, They can go to com. And then I have a supplemental site, strongerteam.com, which has info on the books, podcasts, and one-on-one coaching, of course, a bunch of peripheral stuff. I'm also very easily found on social media, at Allen Stein Jr., and I love engaging with folks. So anyone that was listening to this, if you wanna share a story or you wanna ask a question, or even if you wanna challenge anything that I said, shoot me a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn, I'm very good about getting back to people. I take a lot of pride in being both responsive and accessible. And then you can find my first book, Raise Your Game, or the new book, Sustain Your Game, wherever you get books, whether that's Amazon or if you go to Audible for the audio book, but it should be easily found. Just type in Raise Your Game or Sustain Your Game. Yeah, that should be uh, hopefully easily found and look forward to continuing the dialogue with anyone that this struck a chord with.
0: I love it, man. Thank you so much for doing this. This was awesome.
1: This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Joe.
0: All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I
1: hope you have a great day, and I'll see you next time.